0: bonus so Money episode is cash going away the future of payments
1: you're listening to so money with award-winning money guru farnoosh karabi each day get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds authors influencers and from farnoosh herself
0: Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: I think if I were cash, I'd be a little worried, um, to be honest. I think um, <laughs> physical <paper laughs> yes. currency, yeah. Physical paper. I mean, currency and commerce isn't going anywhere. But if I were cash, I'd be a little bit worried.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. An extra bonus episode of So Money today centering around the future of payments. What is gonna happen to cash? What is going to happen to credit cards? And what are the various options with which we are going to be able to pay for goods and services going forward? Change is afoot. The pandemic accelerated a lot of the innovation within the tech space as it pertains to payments and e-commerce. Our guest today, is at the nucleus of all of this activity. Her name is Nicole Joss, Senior Vice President of Products in the Merchant Solutions Group at FIS. FIS is a Fortune 500 company that holds leadership positions in payment processing, financial software, and banking solutions. This episode has been created in partnership with FIS. Nicole and I discuss the future of cash, electronic payments, changes in the world of e-commerce? Are malls and physical retail locations really going away? What will the future look like? And you better believe we talk about Bitcoin. Here's Nicole Joss. Nicole Joss, welcome to So Money. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to to have a discussion with you today. I know we're going to discuss the future of consumer finance world, specifically how we pay, how we spend. There have been a lot of changes that have been accelerated have come about and then been accelerated in the pandemic. And we want to dive into some of those findings that FIS found. And and before we get into predictions and the trends, tell us a little bit about your role, Nicole, at FIS. And what is FIS for those of us who aren't familiar with the name, but probably have had experience engaging with the technology?
1: Yeah, absolutely. FIS is one of those huge companies that you are engaging with, whether at, at your bank, when you invest, through investment channels, and then also when you go in and pay. I think what so few of us understand, I definitely didn't understand before I joined, kind of all the magic that happens when you put your credit card <laughs> into, into a machine at a store and just all of the things that happened within a second, right? To to make that transaction work, to make the money flow. That's a big part of what FIS does. So we we serve Big merchants, small merchants. We serve big banks and small banks, and we also serve the capital markets to help with the investment software.
0: Tell us what about your day to day role there, and what are you currently working on? Has that really changed in the last year, or is it more of a, an acceleration of what you were already working on?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I would say it's a bit of both. So my my official role is I look after product for for our merchant solutions, which means all of the the things that we build and do for those merchants, big and small. And, you know, within the product team, we really get to play a role between those merchants and our technology teams, trying to understand what they need, where they're going, what solutions they're trying to build, what they're trying to do for their consumers. And we build them. We work with our development teams. We work with lots of partners to help bring those experiences and bring those products to life. So, you know, on a daily basis, it really is understanding and empathizing with customers, really leveraging and thinking about our assets. And then also on a partnership standpoint, you know, who can help us go faster? Because there are lots of great fintechs out there that we work with and ensuring that, you know, we don't have a we have to build it mentality, right? So we know that there are things that we can build and there are things that we ought to partner.
0: It's interesting, you know. I've definitely changed my spending habits in this pandemic. A lot of these changes are being shepherded by consumer demand, right? And so, um, tell us about the forces at play that's bringing on a lot of these shifts and and accelerations. Is it mostly driven by consumers getting used to certain things in the pandemic and feeling like this is just the new normal, or is it that the businesses are realizing, wow, there's so many efficiencies and um, cost savings, perhaps when we adapt to these, you know, advanced technologies? It's kind of all of that, right?
1: If I think about before the pandemic, almost about a year ago, right? A lot of what was driving online curbside delivery was convenience. And, and consumers were seeing how convenient it was to be able to go shop online, to have their groceries delivered, to do curbside pickup. But convenience, you know, is only going to accelerate so fast. Um, I think what the pandemic did was actually create a health reason and another cause for consumers to shift their behavior quicker. So I don't know that we saw any brand new behaviors. I think what we saw were a lot of acceleration and a shift from a shift away from cash, um, a shift away from a lot of the in-person transactions when we were all in lockdown. And to that, yeah, let me buy it and let me go pick it up. Let me buy it and have it delivered. So what is the future
0: of cash? What What are the fortune tellers that you talk to all the time telling you?
1: Yeah, I think if I were cash, I'd be a little worried, um, to be honest. I think um, (laughs) physical currency. Yeah. Physical paper. I mean, currency and commerce isn't going anywhere, but if I were cash, I'd be a little bit worried. FIS just did a great uh, global payments report where we do a study. You know, we go out and talk to customers. We look at our data that we see in cash. Cash went down, I think, by 10% last year. Um, And it's only about one fifth of, of every transaction is now cash. On the flip side of that, online e-commerce transactions went up by 19%. So you can, you can kind of quickly see that there's a shift to um, online. And online doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to the store, right? I mean, I can now buy online and walk into the store or have, it, um, have an in-store transaction that, that is online. So I think in general, you're just seeing cash decline. And, and also we're chipping away at those last mile things, those last mile things of like tipping. I, I, I kind of, you know, I, you know I, I think, what am I still using cash for? I'm yeah. using cash to pay people. I'm using cash to tip people, and with these new pay to, you know, peer to peer payment methods, um, like a Venmo or a PayPal, we're, we're chipping away at those last mile things. So, can we say cash is going the way of checks? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, st- I know. I still, t- I still have a, you know, a checkbook too, and it is. It's kind of those few and far betweens, and it's those last use cases we have to chip yeah. away at.
0: I still meet some merchants and it's usually independent contractors or solopreneurs or like, you know, my plumber who comes to my house every so often, he still wants the check. He, I can't Venmo him. I can't, you know, and I wonder if it is generational where there is still a resistance to something like a Venmo or a PayPal, well, credit cards, because maybe they don't want to pay the transaction fee. What do you see as far as that? Is it, are there people that are still resistant to this or are more people coming around the corner?
1: I think more and more are coming around the corner. And I think part of it is you just got to try it once, right? I mean, my mom might've been one of those, but I, I've now got her using Zelle and, and we can flip money around pretty quickly and easily. Uh, and she sees that it's so much easier than having to Write each other checks or or scrummage for the cash. So mm-hmm. I think it's a try at once, right? And as we can get more and more folks to try it and see how easy it is to to send and move money electronically that that that's what that's what accelerates it. What
0: about the cost of all of this, right? I, I, I've been talking to a lot of people who work in tech and in payment solutions recently. It's been a hot tr- topic, as it turns out, and businesses have had to change overnight in this pandemic and. If you are a brick and mortar business, now hopefully you're more digitally focused and keeping your doors open. But that requires a cost that maybe you weren't accustomed to before, like the cost of your website, managing your website, providing all of these different payment Offerings to your customers that will now cost you more to offer them. So, cost used to be a big barrier for businesses to be able to engage with all these different tech solutions when it comes to payment and e-commerce. Is that becoming less and less of a problem, or is that barrier narrowing?
1: As another great question. I mean, I think overall, because of you know just software and the availability to quickly stand up an online store, there's more and more partners that we're seeing in the space that allow like logistics help on shipping. Um, which used to be a big problem. So I think more and more it is it, it is becoming less of a barrier. But there are there are some hidden costs, right? And that's where we focus some of our energy is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how many people know this, but when you make a transaction in person, if there's fraud in the transaction, the bank is liable. But the minute that transaction goes online and you're buying on an e-com site, you're buying something on your phone, even for a pickup in store, um, the merchant's liable if that's a fraudulent transaction. So as as the transactions have shifted more online, these merchants are now having to bear that liability of fraud. And so they're, you know, it's it's one of those unforeseen costs um, mm-hmm. where we've been, you know, looking at how do we build solutions and protect these merchants from these fraudulent transactions. But in many other cases, I think technology kind of had us ready for the moment with, with with the software that we're seeing and how easy it is for businesses to get online.
0: What are your predictions as far as the future of brick and mortar? And, you know, we know that malls have sort of dwindled and that was happening well before the pandemic. And now many of the big box stores are reducing their footprint. In the study, the FIS study, you found that global e-commerce market is expected to grow 19%. And then by 2024, another 60%. So is that to suggest that we're going to be seeing less, fewer storefronts and right. more websites?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's websites. I don't, think, I don't think they completely go away, right? I mean, we talk a lot about omni-channel and the need to have... Like why would
0: I leave my house then? You know, <laughs> right. I want a
1: reason to leave. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I just took my kid shopping last night and, and she's like, I miss this. I miss being here. And I, and I think that what malls will do, and, and there's some there's some ones by my house, they're creating more experiences, right? Like family experiences. And so I think malls and, and stores just have to work a little bit harder to get us to go. But I think we're all sick of being in the house.
0: Yeah, I know. That's the thing. You know, I I see these findings and I get it. I understand where the trends are going. But at the same time, I'm like, what's going to be left for those of us who do want a little bit of the olden days to come back? You know, maybe uh, um, I want to like take my kids for a stroll through a mall and I want to be able to engage with my local florist as opposed to just buying flowers online. I think there's something about that relationship that people really, really want. How do you square that in a world where, you know, you want to obviously do be successful as a business owner, but you also want to, you know, uh, enjoy what you do. Some people are just not e-commerce people, entrepreneurs, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's what we're seeing a lot is just co- consumer choice, right? Mm-hmm. To have have the storefronts. And we're talking with a lot of the biggest retailers there are, and they're, they're thinking about how do I rethink the in-store experience? How do I ensure that I'm giving consumers choice? Cause I think that's the key is you got to have the pathways for consumers who want to, to who want to come in store to have a strong experience and a compelling experience for them, but also online. And so I think that's what a lot of what we're seeing is just choice. Mm -hmm. To make sure consumers have the choice to shop with you how they want to shop, pay with you how they want to pay. And I know that's a lot of what we're advocating. I mean, it's interesting. Some of the trends we're seeing, too, is we have customers who've started in that e-com space and now they're setting up retail stores. So I think they too understand the value of that experience and it has to be a connected experience, right? I'm going to see the same things online that I can see in store. In store, I maybe want to touch, feel and and experience some products, but then I can go online and buy them later.
0: Yeah, I think Warby Parker is a great example of that hybrid model. Can you give us some examples of companies that are doing just that or anecdotal evidence of that and how it's working? Because I think that really does attract, that's more attractive, I think, to a lot of Entrepreneurs that want to sort of keep their foot in in both worlds, knowing that there there are markets for both of those experiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you know you brought up a great example, Warby Parker. I think you're even seeing Amazon right go in and, and put in some pop up shops, um, especially right. around the holidays, so that you can touch and feel an experience. Because I think they recognize, um, you know, a- Apple is is another great example that that they have a great online shopping experience, but there's also such an such a value of going in and being able to, um, you know, see, touch, feel the products and also talk to experts that, that there is this, um, omni experience, right. That, that we all kind of need.
0: What are, what do I need to know that I don't know as far as what I can expect when I go into a store or when I go on a website in a couple of years, I mean, I'm already seeing a little bit of Bitcoin being, um, uh, an option to pay, like pay with your Bitcoin. I'm like, I yep. wish, um, I think that's going to probably become more ubiquitous in, in many years from now. But what are some other examples of payment options or any other ways that we are transacting that we aren't doing now? We don't even know, but you know, right? Because <laughs> you're yeah. engineering all of this and you're working on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes
1: back to that comment around choice, right? And, and just the importance to give consumers choice. Some of the Some of the cool things I see coming. Um, I mean, right now in market are like buy now, pay later options, right? Yeah, and, I, and I that. think a year ago, we mm-hmm. would see them. But that one, another stat that we got from the global payments report was, I think, 43% growth in that space. And, and just the projections around buy now, pay later and how much consumers and, and especially, you know, an audience around 18 to 29 year olds, you know, millennials who are really choosing to use that as a way to manage their cash flow. Mm -hmm. and look at a bigger purchase, but be able to break it up into a few chunks. So buy now, pay later. The other one I'm excited about is just use your loyalty points, right? That you can go and earn all these points on your cards and then use those at point of sale. So Mm -hmm. loyalty as a currency is something I'm really excited about. And it's not just for your rewards at that store, but actually from your cards, your credit cards that you're earning wherever you shop.
0: Talk about the Amazon influence in the marketplace. I have a love-hate relationship with Amazon. (laughs) You could tell I love it by the number of boxes that come to my house every week. But at the same time, I do feel disappointed in myself in that maybe um, I am just, I'm conditioned now to expect things to arrive at a certain speed. it's not necessary. Do I really need the cookbook in 24 hours? No, probably not. But if I can, I will. And and I think that creates harmful pressure on some other businesses that don't have the capacity to keep up with that. And it's sort of unfair that they are at a disadvantage because of something that we've just been conditioned to expect. That's not a necessity. And so what are your thoughts on that? What's like sort of your TED Talk keynote on that, you know, (laughs) the Amazon influence and what we can learn from that and also like what you think is is excessive and what has been promoted in our e-commerce culture that isn't really healthy for anybody frankly when you, whether you're looking at the the delivery folks who have to work overtime or my kids who expect the toy that I order them to come tomorrow you know losing that sense of delaying your gratification which is so important and you know just becoming a more um, thoughtful financially minded person so anyway that's a lot of thoughts but I just wanted to throw that out there and see what what comes to, to mind.
1: It's a really interesting and provocative thing, right to think about I mean I guess a couple thoughts. One is what Amazon nailed was logistics, right I mean what they did was was enable something to get to our houses in, in one to two days, which has become an expectation. We are seeing some partners in the market stand up solutions to help with logistics and, and understanding that that's one of the things that small businesses have to do to compete with an Amazon is, is to manage the logistics. The second thing I think it's, it's taught us is how massively you can influence consumer behavior when you dazzle them, right? When, when you can make something show up at my house in one to two days, Amazon has become the go-to, right? When you need something they can, you know, just the quickness of the experience in using an app to having something show up. I think if anything, it's, it's just brought to light for all of us, the importance of experience, and and how massively you can change consumer behavior by by providing great experiences.
0: What are some of your own behavioral shifts in the last twelve months that you think will uh, persist, and others that you just can't wait to to just you know kick to the curb? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the one that that's that's probably not great to admit, but but probably you know, I when I say at night that that dinner's ready, the dogs run to the door that's because I'm ordering dinner, right? And we're mm-hmm. having dinner delivered and, and it's something we used to do kind of every once in a while, but what, when the pandemic hit, I did it, one, yes, out of convenience, but two, to try to help these local businesses so that mm-hmm. we'd have some of these small restaurants to go back to. You know, I think we've seen a huge acceleration just in delivery, food delivery. I think that go forward- it doesn't go back to what it was before, but I do think we're all going to go back to the restaurants, right?
0: And I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. worry about the restaurants. And, you know, I, I used to live in New York City for 19 years, and now I'm just over the river in New Jersey. But I do wonder about how restaurants rebuild in a post-COVID era. You know, it is a very tough business to begin with, from a cash flow standpoint, and then something like a pandemic hits, or you know. Uh, I just, I wonder, but that's, that's for another podcast. Um, (laughs) Not to get all doomsday on us, but as we are emerging from this pandemic, I've been reflecting on like, okay, so what could be next, right? What's the next thing? Maybe it's not even in our generation or our era, but like another event that forces us to really shift and pause and have to do things differently. And it could be a cyber war, right? And, and so with, what you do and who you speak to every day and sort of your industry, like, I'm sure this is something that comes up. And, and what are the thoughts right now about like how, if we are encouraging businesses to go tech and more e-commerce, and then something happens that makes them vulnerable to that business model, where, what, what do you do? Do you go back to the storefront? I mean, what do you do?
1: There's definitely a lot of scenarios to play through there. If anything, I think it's adaptability, right? Adaptability has taught us so much. I mean, our company was it was pretty incredible. I think we got 55,000 people working from home within a couple of weeks, right? Or 95% of of them working from home. And and so I think just the adaptability and what I've seen small businesses do um, to quickly go remote, to to stand up quick websites, to take virtual transactions, to to doing curbside I mean, I think the key message is adaptability. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to your point, I mean, I think it creates vulnerability just because we're, we're going to rely so much on technology and software, but I mean, our, our company, so much of what we invest in and look at is security. Um, you know, whether it's anti-fraud, um, anti-hacking encryption, we're, we're definitely spending a ton of money and time and, and even more so just cause now we're all working from home mm-hmm. and, and we, certain sensitivities when we were sitting in the office and they had all these protected Wi-Fi that they could throw firewalls around. And now we're all using our our um, personal Wi-Fi routers, right? right? So it's actually made us be more nimble, probably, and quick on our feet in, in providing those security protocols. And, and so it's probably helped the overall infrastructure, I would mm-hmm. say. To have to be so adaptive and, and to do to adapt in a secure way.
0: Do you think there are scenarios where, in, specifically in e-commerce and in the retail experience, where technology is not the best solution? Like leveraging technology is not the best solution. Maybe it's better to be to create something that is more, you know, in person or brick and mortar. And and I'll give you my my thought process behind this, and it has nothing to do with e-commerce or retail, but it has to do with schools in a pandemic. And I think there was this sort of um, assumption that okay, well, we can't be in school because of this virus. So we're all gonna go on Zoom. And and I think that the thinking stopped short and too soon. Like, well, what if we in the summertime took classes outdoors, right? Like we kind of forgot that we have all these other resources that we can leverage and we don't just have to go digital to create solutions, which Zoom is very problematic, I think, for a lot of educators and students. And so um, I thought that was sort of a short-sighted way strategy, and I get it. You're you're trying to think quick and on your feet, and you you know technology is sort of like a low-hanging fruit at this point um, to bring that into the fold. But bringing that over to the commerce world, do you think that there are scenarios where it it's actually better to not move too quickly? Um, on the technology front or lean too hard to, on the technology.
1: I think that's a great point. And it's it's kind of um, sometimes the knee jerk, right, can can be to over-exaggerate. And, right. and to, to solve the problem, you, you over-exaggerate and take everything online. To your example with schools, I mean, I think, I mean, you brought up Warby Parker earlier. I think they've done a great job of of combining. If it was just I'm trying on glasses and it's all virtual, and and then all of a sudden the pink pair that I chose show up in my In my mailbox, that feels a little bit unpersonal, but the fact that they can send me five or six to try on, they've kind of created that blend, right? And anywhere Mm -hmm. that you can do something, maybe you start a journey online, and maybe I'm starting to shop for for a dishwasher online, right? The more that you can drive me in-store to drive that experience, I think that's where the magic is, is to really combine the in-person and that you can start something online, go in-store, or maybe you go in-store... To, to check a few things out and then you go online to finish. But I think just combining that journey rather than having to be all or all or nothing, right?
0: Yes. And I'll tell you, I mean, as someone who just ordered sunglasses from Warby Parker, the customer service is fantastic. And that's something that they, I know I've, I've interviewed the founders and that's something that they have tried to really nurture from day one and build up. And it's, you know, an award-winning customer service team, but because they really do deliver and follow through for their customers, And you can get on the phone with them, you can chat with them, however, whatever your speed is. And I think that's what I'm also learning in our conversation is that as a merchant, yes, it's about customization and providing these conveniences, but it's also about meeting your customer where she's at or where he's at. And if they want a journey that's a little bit slower, quote unquote, slower, as opposed to fast you need to kind of show up for them in all of those ways. Absolutely. I think customization and choice, right? That mm-hmm. the consumers
1: are going to have more ways to pay, more ways that they want to shop, and we're not all going to be the same. And, and so what, I, what we're seeing merchants who really get it do is, is to set up those customer service, everything from, from I'm shopping to I've got a problem, right? And, right. and you've got you've to gotta serve every piece of that to get it right and making sure it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all world anymore.
0: No, it's not. Let's dive a little bit more into the study that you and your team conducted. And and the headline of the study, the FIS study, is that digital wallets eclipse cash at point of sale for the first time during the pandemic. We've kind of discussed this, not a huge shock. And some of the other key findings were that, which also we've talked about, that e-commerce is expanding exponentially, digital wallets are reaching their maturity, what surprised you? Was there any sort of data point that really kind of made you pause or you're like, huh, I didn't see that coming or that's surprising?
1: Yeah, I think it is some of the growth around digital wallets, right? We we kind of anticipated some growth around contactless and you can do contactless through your plastic, right? Many of us have a contactless card in our, in our wallet, or you can load it into your phone and, and do a, a wallet transaction. And so I think those wallet transactions, both in person and online, That growth is somewhat surprising just because it it took a while, right? It took a while. Mm -hmm. If we think back to like when Apple Wallet was launched, when I think, you know, Google had originally launched launched their wallet and PayPal, there's been a little bit of a slower adoption. And now there's a huge acceleration um, in in leveraging those digital wallets.
0: Do you think that part of why cash payments are down is that we are saving more of our money? The personal savings rate is actually at like last check was around 30%, which is... Incredible, um but also I, I guess not surprising. but, um, what do you think some are some of the reasons behind why cash payments have taken a backseat to digital payments? I mean, there's the ickiness of cash as well. We don't want to touch it in this in this moment,
1: yeah, I think there I think there's an ickiness factor, but i just I think so much comes back to convenience. Right? Yeah. Just, just how easy it is, you know. Cash, you have to like go to your bank, go to an ATM, get some cash out. Whereas a, a credit card or a debit card or a wallet is just so easy. I, I think there really is a convenience play. I say the other one is you can't forget. I mean, I, I want my points, right? And so <laughs> I, I think anytime That's we're true. looking at driving a change in consumer behavior, so I mean, I was on a call this morning and. and You've got to remember that, right? We've gotten people hooked on their points and on on their cards. And so, you know, I don't get that when I use cash.
0: So perhaps a proliferation of credit cards with more offerings and rewards cards and things like that. That's probably another area for growth.
1: Absolutely. I I think um, I'm excited about what I see in loyalty in, in mm-hmm. the loyalty area for merchants getting more and more sophisticated about how they reward us and get us to go back, you know, the, the card companies and, and banks looking at how they get us to use their cards, digital wallets fighting for I mean, the, the winner here is the consumer, right? You're going to see wallets fight for for you to use their wallet, you're going to see merchants fight for your business as they always have and card brands will fight for you to use their card. And, and the winner there is the consumer because they're going to get there by awarding yeah. us and rewarding us.
0: It's interesting what this might also imply for those Americans right now. A large portion of us where we are either underbanked or we are not banking at all. We're keeping our money at home or in on our prepaid debit cards, which isn't really tied to a big bank. Is that, is that also a prediction that this is all just also going to mean more people engaging with financial services?
1: Yeah, I think that you know engaging with financial services and also just some of the new ways to basically pay and fund, like I said, with those buy now, pay later schemes and, and just different ways to manage cash flow, I think is another area of choice for consumers, that they have different ways to, to manage their money, to save their money, to then spend their money.
0: Let's talk about buy now, pay later while you brought it up. I think that's so fascinating. Some people have called it sort of like the virtual layaway. What's so fascinating is that when you, a lot of these companies, they don't charge interest on me. If I, if if I engage in this, it's basically just four installments and rather than p- paying it all at once, but I get the thing right away. And so tell us about what's happening on the back end that makes this so profitable <laughs> for the buy now, pay later folks.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically the the merchant, right? The retailer, the merchant who is funding your ability to, to break that up into four payments. I think that's what's made it take off so much that you're not putting the burden on the consumer and saying, hey, you can break this up and you'll pay 5%. To your point, it's free. Yeah. And and so the merchant is funding that. And if you think about the merchant's biggest cost is is the cost of getting new customers. So they're looking at this, and I, I, I saw a stat there that 30% of customers who are using Buy Now, Pay Later will actually shop somewhere because of the Buy Now, Pay Later program.
0: Ah, so it's paying off.
1: So it's For paying off. Yeah. And the merchant is saying, gosh, I wouldn't have gotten Farnoosh to make that payment if I didn't have this Buy Now, Pay Later and and paying a few percent to get you to, you, you know, to get you to shop there is worth it, where they're usually paying much more to acquire new customers.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of skepticism around that. When I first saw that option, I was like, hmm, what's the catch? Yeah. As the consumer, what it is there's got to be something to that, which, you know, it can't all be win win. <laughs> there's got to be an aspect
1: to that. Tell yeah. me what it is. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess that's it. I mean, I think there actually isn't a catch. It really is that the merchant, they, they want you to come there. They want you to come there more often and they want you to spend more.
0: Right, so, that's and so it. you might spend more than you were planning to. Absolutely, yeah. and the smart merchants are putting
1: it not just at your checkout page, but they're putting it earlier in your shopping experience. I know the emails that I get from from the merchants I go to a lot are emailing me, and and so that way, I mean, what they're really trying to do is get me to spend, you know, three hundred dollars instead of two hundred dollars because I can break it up. Um, so it really is increased basket size and and getting new customers in the door. They're they're looking at it as a marketing cost,
0: not as a payment cost. Wow, as we wrap, I'm really seeing all of the implications of this, all these trends we're seeing, and the reports, predictions, and how it's going to impact financial services, the retail experience, small business, consumers. You're really your job's pretty fun, I have to say. You're sitting on at a nice perch there. You got a lot of interesting perspectives.
1: Yeah, no, it is an interesting perch. I mean, I I was an engineer, right? So engineer by training, ran a ran a startup before this, and, and what I tell people is. I'm good at two things and that's shopping and engineering. (laughs) <laughs> and and that's really my job, right? I, I really get to think about how to solve problems, how to help consumers, how to help merchants, and really marry those those two talents of shopping and engineering.
0: Well, thanks for spending part of your day with us, Nicole. We really appreciate you. And tell us where we can get more of this study. If you go to FIS.com, FISglobal.com would be the easiest way. And you'll
1: find the, the Global Payments Report. I mean, it's it's great study. It's global, right? So it's 41 countries that you can see, you know, not just, not just in the U.S., but globally, how how has the pandemic changed
0: everything? FISglobal.com. Nicole, thanks so much. To learn more about FIS, including a piece that I wrote for their website on the power of fintech on personal finance, check out FISglobal.com slash fintech2030. See you back here tomorrow for Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money.